guys, it's Brandon. Uh, real quick, this is a very special episode that we recorded last Friday, live backstage from the green room at the Addison Improv. Uh, there's some language throughout and some stories that may not be appropriate if you have like kids in the car or something, but otherwise, this is a blast. I really hope that you guys enjoy it and just kind of go along for the ride. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Greg Proops, who played Fode, one of the two heads of the Podrace announcer. He tells an incredible story about his time in the Star Wars universe, as well as an anecdote that will change the way you look at Harrison Ford in Last Crusade forever. Um, This is so much fun, and it is such an honor to say that this is Talking Bay 94, Episode 17, Greg Proops. All right, uh, welcome to a special episode of Talking Bay 94. I'm Brandon Winerdy, and I'm joined today by Greg Proops. Uh, Mr. Proops, thank you so much for taking the time. Pleasure, Bran. All right, well, you just got done with your set at Aston Improv, which was great. I know, right? We'll keep this super brief. You were in The Phantom Menace. I was. The uh, You may remember the movie. It was... Uh, terrible, terrible accident occurred and a great deal of the plot was destroyed. (laughs) Well, before we get into actually filming, I would love to first talk about your experience with Star Wars before you got involved with the actual movie. When you first saw it in 77, did you have any reaction to it or or what was Mm. your feeling initially? We ran out and saw it and we smoked a bunch of weed and we went to um, the Cinerama Dem in San Jose because it's a giant theater that had, you know, 35 millimeter, I mean, 75 millimeter, whatever it was then, you know, giant and surround sound, the whole enchilada. And um, I remember thinking it, it didn't get off the ground until the second act, right? Like the first act of the first movie is all the background and aunt, what's her name, and mm-hmm. uncle, whatever. And, uh, and I remember thinking it, there wasn't a lot there as far as plot. Then when the second one came out, I remember saw it at the, um, the Cornet in San Francisco. And uh, I like that one a lot better. And it's the one that George didn't direct. It's the one Urban Kirshner directed, who was a little bit more of a hand. Um, uh, so... Uh, well, then there was a, th- there was the third one which had the Ewoks in it and whatnot, um, and that one's a decent. Uh, as you're well aware, since you're Star Wars people, um, that was supposed to be a planet of Wookiees, but right. that was too expensive, so they went Ewok. Um, and it was shot a lot of it in the Bay Area, uh, the forests and whatnot, mm-hmm. those sequences. Mm-hmm. But uh, George, and I can call him George because I've met him, tends to uh, shoot overseas uh, in Tunisia and whatnot. So we shot in London at Leaveston Studios. Was that enough background before? I was more of a Star Trek girl myself. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I always loved, because I grew up with it. I was a teenager when Star Wars came out, um, old enough to drive and smoke weed. So, you know, nine. <laughs> um, so uh, we were performing in Scotland, um, me and Scott Capuro, who's, um, I, I am the pod race announcer, Fode. He is Bede. He's the one who speaks in Hatties. I speak in English in the picture. And um, we were both playing at a place called The Pleasance Over the Road in Edinburgh at the festival. And a woman approached us. My show was at 8 and his was at 9 or whatever. A woman approached us after the show who was, one of, was with Lucasfilm at the time. Now they're Disney. And by the way, George gave all that money, that billion dollars, to charity. Wow. He gave it to the education in Bay Area. He is an astounding human being in, in so much as anyone else would have taken the billion dollars. And he said something that I've never heard anyone in show business say before or since. I have enough money. 
because he does. He has yeah. untold riches. The budgets of those movies are just, you know, crazy. So we were playing in Scotland, and she approached us afterward and said, we're looking for two American voices to do. Uh, we're going to do this race in the movie, and we, we want American voices, not British voices, right? Because it gives it more of a, you know, I guess, for their thinking. So we went into a, a studio, uh, an office in London, and we sat there with pieces of paper that had stuff written on it, and we improvised a bunch of stuff. I can say this now. At the time, they would have been furious with me. We improvised the, ooh, ah, he's got a lot of junk in his trunk and all this jazz, uh, because Scott's a friend of mine from San Francisco. He's a comic from San Francisco. And so it's two guys from San Francisco that are the pod race announcers. So we got it. And uh, they called us and went, do you want to do the movie? My British agent said to me, oh, I don't like the deal they're offering you. I don't want you to take it. I swear to God. And I said to her, it goes at the top of my CV, right? Um, which means they're my resume. Uh, in England, they call it a CV, a curriculum vitae. And uh, I go, I don't care how much it costs. I'm going to fucking do a Star Wars movie because then I'll be immortal. And so I did it. And so on the day or preceding that, we were driven out to Leavesden, which is outside of London. And they, to give you an idea of what year this was, they were shooting. They had finished shooting Golden Eye, so it was '97. And um, we went to the model shop, and they made enormous heads for us, right? Which I'm sure you've seen the photos of, but aren't in the movie because they were CGI'd right out. So we were there for hours and hours. And in those days, when they gave you a prosthetic head, they stuck straws up your nose. Now they don't do that. I've had a prosthetic head made about eight years ago for another gig I was doing, and now you can breathe. But in those days, they literally stuck straws up your nose and went, okay, are you all right? And you're like, yeah, I'm fine. You know, and then they fucking wound paper mache around your head for fucking five hours and then built this giant thing. And they were super excited, the guys in the model shop, because they were making the crap movie of uh, um, the Avengers at the time. Not Marvel's Avengers, but the Diana Rigg, uh, Patrick McNee Avengers and if you recall it was a quite awful movie with Ray Fiennes and Uma Thurman and um, Eddie Izzard chasing Sean Connery around in weird uh, trapezes at the end and they'd had her in the week before and they had to do her cat suit right so they were telling us about this and vibrating with excitement because they'd got Uma Thurman down to her underwear and they had wrapped her entire body in paper mache and they were still fucking talking about it at the time right because Uma Thurman's like six feet tall. So we got our prosthetic heads made, and they uh, gave us these weird headphone things to wear. So then we go back several weeks later, and my uh, driver was, uh, they sent a car for me, which was nice. He was a good-looking older man. He looked like Charlie Watts from the Rolling Stones, right? Like his silver hair, you know. And it was a, a beautiful car, like a, uh, a Jaguar saloon, right? So it, it, we're going there, and he goes... Uh, Oh, yeah, I've been on this uh, uh, picture for a while now. And he goes, um, but I'm lucky. And I'm like, why? And he goes, because I've got mates who are on Eyes Wide Shut, and they've been on the picture for two and a half fucking years now, right? Because Kubrick, as you know, shot in England almost strictly and never, ever stopped shooting. He shot everything, right? And always under budget, which is why he had the control that he had. People talk about Kubrick, and they're like, Oh, well, he had artistic control over his movies. It was because, with Warner Brothers, his deal with them, he brought everything in under budget. He just reshot every scene a thousand fucking times. So he also told me that he drove Harrison Ford on Raiders of the Lost Ark 3, right? The one where uh, Sean Connery is the dad. And he said Harrison would smoke a joint on the way to the set every day and look at his script in the backseat of the saloon, right? 
So he'd come in, he, he was staying at the Savoy, in an apartment at the Savoy. He'd pick him up on the Strand, right? And Harrison would come out and fucking get in the car and fucking burn one and fucking read his lines and then go to the set stoned every day. So he goes, one day Harrison Ford comes out with a saucepan because he has a kitchenette in his apartment. So he's got a saucepan with a lid on it and he looks in the mirror. I'm, I'm doing it wrong because it's right-hand drive. So he looks in the mirror and says, Harrison, what's that? And Harrison goes, I ran out of papers, man. So I had to heat up the weed in the saucepan. <laughs> so he, he takes the lid of the saucepan and opens it up and goes, <laughs> smoke fucking billowing, right? He's got, he's heat up weed in a saucepan and it's burning. And he goes, the whole fucking jag fills up with smoke, right? And he goes, I got to put the window down at the light. It's fucking 6 a.m. His first call, right? <laughs> fucking dope smoke's going everywhere. So he takes us to the set. And we go, and we're in makeup for three hours easily. You know, they're putting these giant heads on us. And no costumes, blue suits, right? Because we're up against a blue screen. So now we're taken to the set, and I can't see a bloody thing, right? I've got my, my glasses are off because I can't wear them under the fucking head. We've got this ginormous prosthetic heads on. And uh, we get onto the set, and there's maybe 70, 80 people standing around the set and a giant blue screen. That's it. On the way there, Ewan was coming this way because they were shooting second unit shit with Frank Oz. Um, they were doing the Yoda sequence for that picture. So we said hi to Ewan, and Scott was all excited. We get to the set, and George comes up to us and goes, all right, you guys. And George Lucas acted on a multi-million dollar movie with a 80, 90 people in a room at this giant set in Leavesden like he was in the living room playing with Lego. There was no nerves no fucking sense of urgency. No, he goes, um, you guys, uh, have you guys, have you guys seen the pod race sequence? And I go, no, George, no one's seen it. It's a secret. Cause we weren't even allowed to talk about that. We were in this movie. So he goes, well, do you, do you want to, um, do you want to see it? And I go, yeah, George, we'd adore to see it. Why don't you show it to us? So he turns on a monitor that's approximately this big, right? It's on a little, fucking machine and the monitor's like three by four and I can't see right I have to so I put my nose up against the thing and it's not even a fully fleshed out sequence there's anima uh, it's partly animated and partly not and there's drawings and sketches and then filming in and there's sound and whatnot so we watch it and he goes okay now you guys have seen it um you want to do some takes and we go yeah okay so we get up on the stage and it, not even action. There was no, you know, sound, speed, action. No, no, no. Just like, okay, go. Uh, so we we do our lines and shit. And he goes, that. Then he cut, and then he walks up to us and um, that was really good. Um, do you guys mind doing it again? And I go, no, George. We'd be delighted to do it again. So he goes, okay, do it again. This time, turn your head to the right. <laughs> so we, and then. Now turn your head to the left. Now look up. Now both look down. Now both look that way. So we're trying to catch every look of watching a race in a giant amphitheater. And that was it. So we did that for several hours. And we read our lines a bunch of times and everything. Which, of course, those lines never are the ones that are in the movie. We ADR'd them a million times after. So we finish. And we go back to the makeup room. And... Uh, uh, our, it takes a couple hours to take the makeup off. So Scott grabs the second AD, who's been looking after us all day, as second ADs are to do. And he goes, hey, 
is there any swag, mate? And the guy goes, hang on a minute, and I'll, I'll go get some. So he fucks off, right? And he goes, heaven knows where. And he comes back a couple minutes later. And this is the part that's for Star Wars people uh, more than anything. He gives us two polar fleeces, and they both say, episode one. Now, only Star Wars people know the significance of that. It's like having a Revenge of the Jedi shirt. The movie hadn't a name yet. It was simply called episode one at that point. They didn't know that it was going to be called The Phantom Menace. So I have it. Don't come to my house. I'm not selling it on eBay. I've got it in a plastic thing, and I've kept it because it's a memento. So Scott and I went back to my crib. I was living in Hampstead with my wife at the time, and we ordered Chinese food, and we fucking wore our polar fleeces. And Scott kept going, we're star whores. We're star whores the whole time. Then uh, we're called back. Um, I-, I was called back, and then we were called back individually. I had no idea that Scott's character was going to speak in Hatties until the movie came out. When I saw the movie, finally... I went, oh my God, they made Scott go in and speak in Hatti. So he had to go, right? And all that shit. So I was called back in several times and we did ADR work in London at a studio in Soho. And the last time I was called back in, we, uh, uh, I was brought in and um, they had a phone on a cradle, right? This is the 90s, with a speaker to, to Mill Valley, to Lucas Ranch. And um, there was a cat on the line, not George, someone else, a lower cat. And the cat would go like, okay, will you read the lines? And I'd read them, you know. Uh, well, uh, hey, there goes little Skywalker. That little human being is out of his mind, right? And my character is based on a baseball announcer from the 80s in San Francisco named Ron Fairley. Ron Fairley played for the Dodgers, famously, with um, Sandy Koufax and whatnot. And then he played with the Montreal Expos. And when he retired, he became a baseball announcer. And when he would announce for the Giants, he got everything wrong. Mark Grant and Mark Davis played for our team. One was left-handed, one was right-handed. And he could not tell the difference between Mark Davis and Mark Grant, even though they were pitching from opposite sides of the mound. And so Ron Fairley would announce a play like this. Well, here comes a pitch from Davis. And, well, there, well let me, okay, it was a double play. And so uh, uh, the ball was a grounder. Like, after the play was over, he, he, you know, he was the play-by-play guy. And he still, so I took his voice. I stole it completely because I, I used to do a bit about him, you know. Well, I was, uh, I was at the ballpark the other day, and I was having an Italian sausage. It was a Calabrese. I think it had fennel in it. It was very, very spicy, and there's a home run. Anyway, <laughs> so that's the voice I'm doing in the movie is Ron Fairley, from, who later went on to announce for the Mariners. We, I'm brought back in. I do my lines, and um, every pass I do, right, every take, the guy goes, perfect, moving on, right? The British people are like, what did you, what did you think? And the guy from Marin goes, perfect, moving on. And I said, can I ask a question about five lines in? When does the picture open? And the guy goes, two weeks. (laughs) So when it's two weeks till the finish, everything I did was fucking perfect, right? I thought, so you're using takes that I'm doing today that I'm just pulling out of my ass instead of the million times we did it on the set and every other stuff. So, um... Uh, then the picture came out and I went and saw it. I missed uh, the first part. We went in San Francisco. It was at the, I can't remember which theater it was at, the Regency or something. And um, I remember thinking, oh, this movie's boring, right? Like the, the beginning when they're riding through the thing and they're in the underwater and there's a giant fish chasing him and uh, the little Anakin goes, uh, oh my God, there's a giant fish. And uh, Liam Neeson's character goes, there's always a bigger fish. And I thought, oh, all the urgency has gone out of it. The first three movies are, we've got to get out of here. And the second three movies are, hey, whatever. You know, <laughs> what does Princess Amandala say in the, uh, uh, the beginning? We shouldn't have come. 
<laughs> so uh, now the picture comes out, and then I'm taken to San Diego some years later to redo it for the DVD. This is, uh, golly, in 2006, seven. So they put us in, um, I, I'm, I live in L.A., and th they were recording in uh, outside of Tijuana, what they call Fox Baja, right? And to give you an idea of what year this was, um, James Cameron had just shot uh, Titanic there, right? They used Fox Baja, or whatever it was called before that, to shoot Titanic because they had, you know, the half a ship and all that jazz and the, the dazzling variety of fucking effects and whatnot. So I was taken in a car to LAX from my house, and then in a very small aircraft, I was flown to San Diego. And I mean, the aircraft was so small that I had a bag like that, and they took it away from me because the plane was so small, it was like a six-seater. And they go, oh, that's too big to take on the plane. So I took my book, and I had my book in my hand. The pilot turned around, no uh, uh, door in those days. He turned and went, everybody ready? So we flew to San Diego, which is a 30-minute flight from Los Angeles. And we landed there and then driven to Fox Baja. And it wasn't a studio. It was an office. And I mean it like this, but more sparse. And there was an Apple computer, a couple of technicians, and a microphone on a stand, and a bunch of people sitting there. And they went, okay, we're redoing all of this for the DVD. So I did all my lines again. And then they're like, hey, will you do one for Phil in accounting? Will you do one for Doug and fucking, you know? And so I went, well, Doug, this is crazy. You know, so I had to do all this over. Then we broke for lunch and we had Mexican food because we were in Mexico. And then I was driven back across the border uh, where we waited some time to get through to the San Diego airport where I got on another small plane and flown back to Los Angeles. And that is my Star Wars story. And that is a Star Wars story. <laughs> well, uh, Mr. Proops, thank you for... Do you have any questions? Well, I was going to talk about Clone Wars. Mm. Uh, we could talk about that. So Clone Wars, I got called to do. Clone Wars was really fun. And they go, you're not doing the pod race announcer. Because I did all the DVDs, right. all the video games. There's even a Lego. Yeah, I, I'm in Lego. I did in the late 90s, early 2000s, when everything wasn't as techy as it is now, there was a bunch of DVDs and, you know, of like pod race mm -hmm. and all those. So I did all those, which was really nice. So Clone Wars, they called me. And I went to a studio uh, out in the valley on Coinga in Los Angeles. I was thrilled because I wasn't. Fode, right. I was Tal Merrick, and Tal Merrick uh, threatens Princess Amandala with a gun and tries to kill her, and he's a total Nazi fascist pig. <laughs> so I really enjoyed doing it, and I was like, well, Princess Amandala, so you think your revolution is going to succeed and whatnot, <laughs> and then I'm blown away in the last scene. So I was like, oh, okay, I'm die. <laughs> so I get a call a couple months later, and it's the lovely woman from Lucas, and she goes, we want you to come back. And I go, I can't come back. My character died. And she goes, this is Star Wars. It's a prequel. So I came back <laughs> and I did the character again in a previous episode to the one before where I'm shot to death <laughs> in the Princess Amandala episode. So I was Telmeric in those ones. And then, um, yeah, uh, we did the Lego one after that, I believe. And then another one that I can't bloody remember the name of. And um, there's another one now that I can't tell you about. It's a Fode return in episode nine. That's well, no, Fode's not in. Uh, I'm not in any no, of the, the the pictures. Uh, <laughs> but there's a uh, yeah. 
we're working on an animated thing. Okay. That is a secret. All right. And um, and like that. So I, I have been chuffed as I can be to um, be part of the Star Wars universe. And believe me, I've gotten letters for 20 years from a lot of letters from Scandinavia. Oh. Uh, people send me the figures, mm-hmm. which I didn't even know existed. So a couple of years ago, I'm at a gig at the podcast because people bring me gifts at the podcast. And there's a figure of Jabba, and it says, um, with, with spitting action. <laughs> and in the back of the box, which I haven't opened, and I have it at home in my garage, there's a hole in the back of the, of the <laughs> Jabba figure. And the Podrace announcers are included in Jabba's figure. We're on the side. And you're supposed to put your finger in, which is extremely gross, and rub Jabba's horrible lizard-like surface. So I've received two of those. I gave one of them away. Um, and I've made all my friends come into the garage and go, like, put your finger in here. <laughs> but it says, Jabba the Hutt with Foden bead, lifelike spitting action on it. So uh, I have my figures. I have my um, Jabba. And, um, yeah. What else do you need? That's right. It. So when people write me online or on Twitter or whatever, I'll go, I'm Fode Achuta. Because there's no word for thank you, really, in, right. in, in, in Hatties. Yeah, Hatties is limited. Badu, badu, solo, jaba, no bada, jaba, wanka. I think with that, we leave it there. Mr. Proops, thank you so much. for This was literally the best episode we ever had. Ah. So I'll say that. I will say that right now. Um, but thank you so much. Pleasure, Graham. Thank you so much again to Mr. Proops for taking the time after his show to tell us these incredible stories and make us laugh harder than we ever had on this podcast. Be sure to listen to his incredible podcast, The Smartest Man in the World, which you can find on iTunes, and check out gregproops.com for upcoming show dates, including stops in Toronto, Oregon, and Washington. His act is really a blast, of course. Next week is our incredible interview with original trilogy matte painter and visual effects legend Harrison Ellenshaw. So stay tuned, leave a five-star review, and may the force be with you. 